He's praying for us. He says he's praying for the disciples and he's praying for everybody who would believe on account of their word. That's you and me because there's been generation after generation of people who have believed and passed on their faith to you and I. And so 2,000 years later, here you and I sit, hopefully trusting in Jesus Christ. And so as he's about to go to the cross, he says, I'm praying not for myself, I'm praying for those you have given me and those who will come to believe by their word. So he's praying for us, and his prayer is this. His prayer is, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began. Now, I promised you that if you came into my office and you said, Pastor, I'm having a hard time. I need you to pray for me. And I said, okay, Father, I'm praying for so-and-so. And my prayer for them is that you would glorify me. How many of you are coming back to my office for prayer sometime in the future? Nobody. Nobody's coming back to have me pray for them again. And rightly so, by the way. But that's because I'm not God. I know, that's a surprise, right? Shocker. But that's a strange prayer, is it not? But by a very definition of what it means to be God, what can exist that's greater than God? Nothing. Therefore, what can we see and enjoy that is more beautiful or enjoyable than God? And the answer is nothing. And so it's God and God alone who can pray, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world began, and I'm praying that for them. What Jesus is praying in that moment is that as he goes to the cross and as he is resurrected, what they would see in his death and in his resurrection is his glory for their joy and for yours and mine. Which means when we live for our glory, we minimize our joy. We look at lesser things. And really, we have no glory. We're moons, not suns. What's the difference between the moon and the sun? They both provide light, correct? What's the difference between the, the moon and the sun? The moon can only reflect light. The sun creates it. God's the sun. All glory emanates from him. And the best we can do is reflect that glory. But when we try and maximize our own glory, we just end up in the dark. And so Jesus is asking us to obey, not to minimize our joy, but he's asking us to obey that we might abide in the Father's love so that we might see him and know him in the fullness of our glory and that our joy might be maximized. So yes, our obedience is for the glory of God, but it's also for our joy. And so first, we're friends. Second, our friendship is marked by obedience. And third, and this is what we're going to examine today, is that we've been called to this friendship, to this vine branch connection with Jesus for a purpose. It's not accidental that we are called to these things. Sorry, I don't know what app is using up battery life on my phone, but it's in my back pocket and it's getting really hot. (laughs) 
God has called us for a purpose. He, he ha- and by the way, this purpose is not just so that you and I might enjoy the benefits of his grace. That's part of it. In fact, I would say that's not, the, not one of the purposes at all. Enjoying the benefits of his grace is the byproduct to which he, uh, for which he has called us or of which he has called us. But he's called us, as we see here, that we might bear fruit. Let's look again at these passages. You did not, or these verses, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in, in, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. And so I want to take a look today at Jesus' final instruction in this section of the Upper Room Discourse. And I'm going to give you each of these points in two parts. So uh, expect to see half of the point and then another half. So first, let's look at the principle of our calling. The principle of our calling. Now, I I have to admit that the word principle may be a bit of a stretch here, but every single other point I was able to get a P word into, and so I'm a Baptist preacher, which means alliteration is super important. I'm already breaking some rules by having five points, not three. That's not a Baptist preacher thing, and so I'm stretching a bit here. But I wanted to, uh, to have, I wanted to be able to alliterate this point as well. However, let me give you one of the definitions of the word principle. A principle is a fundamental, primary, or general law or truth from which others are derived. It is a fundamental truth from which others are derived. And so when I say principle, what I'm saying today is that this is a general truth. There is a general truth that Jesus is about to tell us that underlies everything else he's about to tell us. And that fundamental truth is, here's the second part of point one, it's the love of Jesus. The fundamental truth is the love of Jesus. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, I understand that Jesus says he has chosen them and not they him. This would have been, by the way, in contrast to the the typical way rabbinical schools would have worked. Individuals would have sought to work under a particular rabbi. And Jesus, in great contrast to that, he went and pulled them out of tax booths and fishing boats and uh, various other places. And so when he says that he chose them, it's, it's kind of in contrast to the way that rabbinic schools worked in that day and age. So why then have I chosen the word love? Well, I'm probably keying a little bit off of what Spurgeon called electing love. See, the reality is he didn't just choose them, nor did he choose you and I merely to be his servants. We've already seen that that's part of the reality, but he also chose them to be friends. And more than that, they were chosen for salvation. 
They were chosen to receive his grace. Out of all of that generation that would reject him and crucify him according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, we read that in Acts and 1 Corinthians, out of this entire generation from which the truth of the plan was hidden, again, 1 Corinthians, he chose them to be his friends, to receive forgiveness, to be let in on the plan, to join his kingdom, and to be his apostles. He chose them that he might live sinlessly for them. He chose them that he might die substitutionally for them. He chose them so that as we see in Hebrews, he could continue to intercede for them, to set them on a mission, to give them everything they needed to succeed in that mission, to be his friends, and ultimately, though not as individuals, as a group, as the church, to be his bride. This is way, way more than just simply choosing someone to be on your team like, you know, like kids picking Uh, who's going to be on their soccer team on the playground. He wasn't just saying, hey, you're going to be on my team. He was saying, no, you're going to be on my team, but I'm going to live for you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to go then to heaven, and I'm going to continue to minister on your behalf to cover up all the rest of the dumb things that you guys are going to do. And and I'm going to glorify you. And ultimately, I'm going to turn you, with all who would believe in me, into my bride. It's a choosing to individually be his brothers and sisters and collectively his bride. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, If you've ever picked up a book, ladies, this might be a particular temptation to have a book like this. I'm not saying maybe it's your particular temptation. I'm just saying they seem to, these books seem to be written for ladies that, that talk about how Jesus can be your husband. Throw them away. The New Testament never presents Jesus as our husband individually. Individually, he's presented as our brother, our big brother. Individually, he's presented as our master. Individually, he's presented as our king. Individually, he's presented as our Lord. Individually, he's presented as our friend. But he is only ever presented as the bridegroom to the collective church. He doesn't relate to us individually as a spouse. He relates to the church as a whole, as its husband, and the church is his bride. And so this choosing of him for such glorious things, it becomes the principle, it becomes the foundation for which uh, everything next is about to to be said. And I got to tell you, there is a ton packed in these two verses. So let's try and move along quickly. Next, I want us to see not only the principle of our calling, that Jesus has chosen us in love, I want us to see the provision, or the precision, rather, of our calling. The precision of our calling. It may seem weird to talk about the precision of our calling, but I think it's the right thing to do. The, The next words of Jesus, after saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you, is he says, and appointed you. The word that gets translated as appointed here is the word tithemi, which means to place or to put. See, for us, 
we often think in terms of circumstances, as though circumstances are random, as though there's such thing as luck or chance. And, and this is a very finite understanding. It comes from the fact that we can see very little of what's going on in the world. But the provision of our calling is, part two of point two, is the providence of Jesus. So the precision of our calling is based upon the providence of Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean, he is literally saying, I have placed you. I have put you. I have appointed you, and I would say their address, their location, their profession, your calling, your profession, your family, your address, your neighbors, your coworkers, none of it is accidental. The disciples and you and I were placed exactly where the providence of God wanted them and you and I to be put. I think a, a helpful distinction here might be to understand the difference between what we talk about when we talk about God's sovereignty and when we talk about his providence. His sovereignty generally refers to divine decrees, things that he says will happen. This is, thus saith the Lord, and then he says something will come to pass, and it comes to pass. It, it is unchangeable. When God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. When he says his son will be born, his son will be born. When he says his son will die, his son will die. And no amount of the Peters in the world saying, no, certainly you won't die, Lord, are going to overcome the fact that Jesus was going to die. Because God declared that it would be. Now, God's God's sovereignty, it really refers to all of his sovereign control, but mostly we're talking in his sovereignty when he makes a, a specific declaration. But in, in his providence, we're talking about the ways that God, unseen, and, and this is really hard for us to understand, I understand God's sovereignty. When God says A, B, and C are going to happen, they happen. He's in absolute control, and that's, that's that. But his providence is much harder to understand. His providence is his working out of all things according to his plan through the willful actions of people and through even the choices of people. So we know that God tempts no one to sin. And yet, when Israel crucifies Jesus, the innocent Lord of glory, Peter in Acts right after Pentecost says that it happened according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. So we know that God couldn't cause them to do it and yet it all worked according to God's plan. God's, God's providence is his working in, in ways that we can't even see or understand uh, in, in our lives. And I think most of us can see this. In fact, when I hear people's testimonies, think about, think about when you became a believer, when you got saved. The thing I hear over and over and over again from people is, before I ever had any inkling that I would believe. Now hindsight's 2020 and I can see ways that God was working to bring me to faith. You should see how many heads are nodding in this room. 
like completely oblivious to us, in his providence, God is working under all things to bring about his plan. And so your job, your family, your friends, your address, Trinity's address, your neighbors and coworkers, none of it's accidental. He has placed a precise calling on our lives for his glory. But let's see now what this calling actually is too. We, we've, seen it's, we've seen the principle of this calling is that he loves us. We've seen the precision of our calling is, is and, and even uh, Paul, by the way, in Galatians uh, is very clear when he gives his testimony that it was even according to God's uh, sovereign plan, the timing of Paul's salvation. He understands, he, he understands himself to have been saved at the exact moment that God wants, wanted him to be saved. Read the book of Galatians. But we see now the purpose of our calling. The purpose of our calling. So look now with me at verse 16 again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Here's the purpose of our calling, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. The purpose of our calling is, here's point, part two of point three, the eternal good of others. The purpose of our calling is the eternal good of others. He has called us right where we're at so that we might go and bear fruit. The purpose of our calling is not just the enjoyment of of the benefits of grace. He has called us, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, he has called you so that you might do spiritual good for others. This is going to beg a tough question of all of us. And here it is. Who in your life is learning to either follow Jesus for the first time or to follow him better because they know you. If you're not spiritually affecting others, if you're not producing fruit in terms of evangelism and in terms of doing good to others in the church, then you don't understand the purpose of your calling. It might be time to step out of the selfish mode of I'm saved for me and realize that your calling is that you might bear fruit and that your fruit might abide. After the events of the upper room here in John chapter 15, Jesus is going to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray. This is where we, we come back to, uh, to John chapter 17. In verse 9, he says... I'm praying for them. This is the disciples. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. He's not praying for those who haven't believed. He says, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he's, this is a pretty pointed prayer. All those out there in the world that you haven't given me, I'm not praying for them. These 11 who are left, Judas had already gone out. I'm praying for them. And then in John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
Here's my point. Jesus expected that the disciples' calling would result in other people knowing him. His prayer is far beyond these 11 men who are sleeping while he's praying. And that extends all the way us uh, to, to you and I. He doesn't just pray for the disciples. He prays for everyone who will have faith because of their words. And so the disciples, they made disciples who made disciples who made disciples all the way down to you and me who are called by our master to be disciples who make disciples. Um, the whole idea of a disciple is to be like your rabbi, to, to take up the work that he was doing. And so in order to be able to claim to be a disciple, we have to be disciple makers. You, you can't claim to be a disciple of Jesus and not make disciples. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved if you don't. I'm just saying there's, there's a degree to which if we're not disciple makers, we're not like the master. Because he was a disciple maker. The point of our salvation isn't just our own benefit. It's such a sinful and selfish way to think. Like everything's about me, but it was just a couple of weeks ago I said we had a new phrase that we should put on repeat at Trinity to ourselves and to each other, and that's, it's not about me, and it's not about you. The, the reality is he's left us. The purpose of our calling is to do good to others. When you show up as service starts and leaves the moment, leave the moment it's over, you don't put yourself in proximity to bear, with others to bear fruit. Now, bearing fruit can take all kinds of shapes. It could be inviting somebody to do a Bible reading plan with you and meeting with them regularly. It could be robustly engaging in an adult Bible fellowship. It could be uh, in, engaging in a, uh, a, gro a growth group. There's lots of ways. But one of my mentors used to say all the time, you impress people at a distance, you impact them up close. And without getting up close into people's lives, we'll never be able to, to bear fruit. Now, notice he says that this is fruit that should abide. This isn't quick fruit. This isn't fruit that, that fades away or rots fast. And... and one of the things we have to understand is that there are only three eternal things. Only three. God, his word, and people. And it's only investing in those things that, that creates fruit that abides. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians says we can build with gold and silver and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw, and that when we go through judgment, and 2 Corinthians is clear, we will go through judgment, uh, not a judgment for our sin, but the judgment for, with what we did with God's grace in our lives. Either the things we did will burn up or they won't. His point there is that you can invest in eternal things or you can invest in temporal things. One creates fruit that abides and one does not. Your portfolio, your, your job, unless it's used for the purpose of evangelism and, and discipleship, it's not abiding fruit. 
Only when we invest in God, his word, and people, and really the secret sauce is all three at the same time, we invest in people by pointing them to God and using his word that we create fruit that abides. The good news is, here's the really good news, you have not been left provisionless in this. So number four is the provision for our calling. The provision for our calling. Look at what Jesus says next. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that this conjunction is going to connect us to what Jesus just said, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What is the provision of our calling? It is the grace of God. Now, grace does not just mean forgiveness. Grace, biblically, has a much more robust meaning than that. Anything we receive from God is his grace. And what Jesus is saying is, you have not been left resourceless. Now, if you just cherry-pick this verse and say, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you, we could abuse this verse wildly. But there's that pesky conjunction there. That's so that this giving of whatever you ask in his name and the Father giving it to you, it's connected to going and bearing fruit that abides. Which means God's not just going to give you whatever you want because he's a, a I don't even know what the word would be, but, but a, a weak father who just gives all of his children whatever requests they have out of his infinite resources. No, no, the context suggests to us that he gives us whatever we need to live on that purpose, to live into that mission. So when we say, God, give me a better job so I can have more money and be more comfortable and buy that vacation house, he might look at us and say, you know, those things might prevent you from the calling. And so my answer is no. No. But when we pray, God, give me the words and the wisdom I need to share the gospel with my neighbor, what's he going to say to that? He's given us all of the provision that we need to live on this mission, not to just have whatever we want. The mission is that others might know him, that the gospel might be proclaimed to the whole world, that the church might be a place where through, through relationships and connection, the, the, the fruit that results, results in growth. The fruit here is decisively in the church for maturity and outside of the church for salvation. And when we ask for God for anything, or when we ask of God for anything according to that mission, he's happy to grant it. Because the reality is, the comfortable part of our salvation, the part where there's nothing hard to do, where there's no work, where there's no fear, where there's nothing, where it doesn't take guts to tell somebody about Jesus, where there might not be rejection, that's eternal. That part lasts forever. But that comfortable part of our faith, it's not yet. We're still in the trenches we're still called to do hard things. We still have to take up our cross daily and follow him. And so his provision for eternity will be for absolute comfort and joy. But his provision in this life is for the furthering of the mission. And so his grace is to, um, 
His grace in this life is for that mission. Let's not forget that the glory of God is our highest good. And therefore, when we seek his glory through others believing, through others growing, through, through, uh, notice what he says in verse 17, so that you will love one another, that's where we find our happiness. That's where we find our ultimate happiness. That happiness, that contentment, it's a byproduct of this mission of being about his glory. When we seek our own glory, we end up disappointed. And so I would say that if there is a deep-seated, nagging disappointment in your life, it might be that you're living for your own glory and not for God's. Because when we live for our own, that byproduct of contentment, it's gone. We just end up in the dark. But when we live according to his plan, on his mission, with his provision, that, that joy that Jesus is praying for in John 17, it's, it's the byproduct of the obedience that keeps us abiding in his love and the seeking of his glory whereby we see him to be beautiful. And we, not, we find not only the provision for our calling, but lastly, in verse 17, we find the protection through our calling. The protection through our calling. He says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. What is, what is the protection through our calling? Well, it is, second part of point five here, it is the fellowship of the church. The reality is that he has not left us alone. He has left us in the fellowship of the church. Let's look again at Jesus' dying prayer. We've looked at John chapter 17, verse 20. I want to add verse 21 to it now. Just listen as I read it to you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. As Jesus heads to the cross, on repeat, he, he, he just keeps praying for a couple of things. The unity of his people and the love of his people. Unify them. Give them love for one another. Back to chapter 15, verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I think it's easy to forget this. I think it's easy to forget that the unity of the church and the love of the church is for our protection and for our joy. This reminds me of Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is a psalm of ascents, and and you had to go upstairs to get to the temple. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to go on our trip to Israel a couple of months ago, but one of the things you find about the steps that lead up to the Temple Mount is they're not evenly spaced. They're different heights and different depths, and they're actually a little difficult to walk up. And the reason for that was it made you slow down. You couldn't run. You had to walk reverently up to the Temple. 
but you would have to go up. It was on a high point in the city, and so you would climb up these stairs. And so these Psalms of Ascents, all right around Psalm 133, they were Psalms that were prayed as the people would ascend the hill to the Temple Mount to worship God. They were preparatory Psalms for worship. And so Psalm 133 is a song of ascents of David. I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again because uh, there's, there's uh, some pretty salient points in here. David starts out by saying, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I, I don't think his use of the words good and pleasant are accidental. Because what's good isn't always pleasant. Bradley and I went for a run last night. It was good. Was it pleasant? (laughs) It was not pleasant. He was breathing hard, and so was I. What's good for us isn't always pleasant. And what's pleasant isn't always good. I don't know about you, but we got all kinds of food waiting at the house for us as we, you know, celebrate into the wee hours of the night going headed to New York, New Year's. There's ice cream in the freezer. There's food in the fridge. I anticipate that all of it will be good. I mean, pleasant, but none of it's probably good. Ice cream is good, not pleasant. Exercise is Good. I just, I can't get that right. Let me start over. We're going to go see Willy Wonka this afternoon. So uh, strike that, reverse it. Um, Ice cream is pleasant, but not good. Exercise is good, but not pleasant. God, through David, reminds us that when brothers dwell in unity... It's good and pleasant. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And I've heard uh, some people talk about this and say, well, oil was refreshing uh, in the hot climate of the Middle East. And people who think that about this passage have entirely missed it. Aaron was the first high priest, and he was appointed high priest by God who gave orders for a perfumer to make a specific oil that could not be copied uh, without, I think it was a death sentence to copy this oil, and this oil was used only for the purpose of anointing the high priest. I think what David has in mind is that the unity amongst brothers and sisters that's good and pleasant, it's not something that we can auto-generate. It comes down from God. It comes down according to his design and prescription, running down on the beard of Aaron and on the collar of his robes. These robes would have been the robes that he used for his high priestly duty. This isn't just about, oh, how refreshing it is. Verse 1 is about how unity is good and pleasant. Verse 2 is about how it comes down from God. Similarly, verse 3 says it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Hermon is the highest peak in Israel, and it's in the north. 
Zion is more central or even towards the south of Israel. The dew of Hermon does not fall on the mountains of Zion. Again, what would be required in order for the dew of Hermon to be on the mountains of Zion? Well, it would require the command of God. And David, David finishes this psalm, this psalm of ascent, to the gathering of the people, to the worship of God's people in the temple by saying, there, where, where, God ha- where there is unity amongst God's people, where brothers dwell in unity, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And God has promised to meet every single believer individually as they pray and read their Bibles and maybe even hike through the mountains in a unique way. But he's also promised that he meets us in a unique way when we gather as a people. And the gathering is never to be a substitute for individual time with God. And time with God individually is never supposed to be a substitute for the gathering. It's in the gathering of the brothers and sisters where we dwell in unity that's good and pleasant that God has commanded the blessing of life evermore. What's your favorite image of the church? Some of the biblical imagery of the church is that it's a body, that it's connected yet diverse, that every part is necessary. We're going to consider that in January. Some of the imagery is of a vine. Some of the imagery is of a bride. I think my least favorite uh, image of the church is that of a hospital. Um, I don't think it squares up with, with Scripture. If you want to know why I don't think it does, you can catch me after service. Uh, Another good one is that of an embassy. I think that comes out of 2 Corinthians. It's a little slice of heaven on earth. It's It's a little piece of God's kingdom amongst worldly kingdoms. But I think one of my favorite uh, ideas of the church in my own mind or my favorite images of the church right now is that of a service station. Now, I don't mean a gas station. We go to gas stations today. We like, you know, fill up with gas and we move along. But some of you might remember service stations where they came and pumped your gas and checked your oil and washed your windows and did all the things. Uh, like, I think that's the best, one of the, my favorite images for the church currently. Like, we come in on a Sunday by connecting and dwelling with others in unity, by singing praise through prayer, through the preaching of the word, we come in and, and we get fueled up and we make sure all of our fluids are, are topped off with the goal of being able to go out and get some work done. We fuel up to go out and, and burn said fuel on mission. Occasionally, You might have to spend a little more time at the service station. You know, if something's wrong and you need some repair, uh, then you might have to spend a little more time. If something's wrong in life or wrong in marriage or wrong in the family, you might have to spend a little more time in the church. But the ideal scenario would be to get that thing repaired and to get the car back out on the road, to get back to the work that we've been called to do. Maybe for you, that service station time is just Sunday mornings. If it is, make the most of it. Don't just show up at the last minute and leave as soon as things are over. Get into an ABF 
We're going back much more to a fellowship model. We're going to have some starting up in the new year. Uh, pray with people in an ABF. Have robust discussion in an ABF. Tell people what God's doing in your life. Ask people how they're doing, applying the things that you're learning in there, and be vulnerable about how you're doing. Like, make the most of your Sunday mornings. Maybe that's not for you, though. Maybe you're going to come to a service on a Sunday and get involved in a growth group. That, that would be, you know, the same thing. That would be great, just a, a different place. I, I don't know. But I'm going to say something unpopular. And that is, unless you're, uh, unless you're in need of repair... Like, just spending too much time in the church, having all of your interactions in the church, if you're like here Sunday mornings and an ABF and a growth group and on Wednesday nights and on Monday nights and you've, you, you know, I, I serve here and there and here and there and, and you don't do anything outside of the walls of the church, you're probably here too much. Do less. Go tell somebody about Jesus. Burn some of that fuel that's, that's going in. We're on mission. If you know Jesus, if you've been forgiven, you have been so forgiven so that you might bear fruit. And if you're not, if you, I mean, if you are a believer, but you're not bearing fruit, it's not because God hasn't given you the needed resources. That would be a heart problem, and that would be something you should take up with the master. But if you don't know Jesus, well, he wants to offer you forgiveness, and he wants to give you a purpose. If you want to know more about knowing Jesus, talk to somebody who's here, me or somebody you know, but don't go another day without knowing who he is, without hearing and, and receiving the invitation and the offer to be forgiven of your sins and to be called to a new purpose and to walk with God. I guess the last thing I'll say, it's not about us. And it's never been about us. It's about the glory of God. Father, would you be glorified in us? Would you be glorified in us as we interact inside the church and bear fruit that others might be mature would you be glorified in us as we tell people who don't know you of your son and what he has done? And, and as we open our homes and our lives and, and our tables and whatever it is, Lord, uh, as, we, as we interact with people who don't know you, would you give us the boldness we need to point others to you and, and, and to see your glory? Father, would you help us to, uh, to be on mission to enjoy the protection of the church as we live in a world that may at times be hostile to us? Would you help us to, uh, to ask for the provision of things that further that mission? And would you help us to see that our joy is distinctly connected to your glory? And may we live lives that bear fruit and fruit that abides. For your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.